Tell by the screen is titled Monasticism, the Fall of Rome, and the Rise of the Papacy. And my goal is to cover all three of those subjects. That's a lot to cover. But really what I want you to understand when we get through this is where the Middle Ages comes from. And if you don't know, like, what's the Middle Ages as opposed to, like, what was early church as opposed to, you know, what came after the Middle Ages, well, hopefully this will, this will help. So introducing this subject, the Middle Ages arrived due to a lot of factors, but three events stand out as prominent, and all three are big Christian history events, church history events. And so these events themselves began during the patristic period, okay? So these aren't things that just started in the, the time frame that we're talking about, but there's some continuity. So you have some things that start in the, the era of the patristics or the church fathers, and then the things that get started there are actually going to grow. That's the best way to put it. They're going to evolve, they're going to magnify, and then eventually you end up with the Middle Ages. And again, I'm going to explain this all. Um, so you have both continuity and discontinuity. You're going to have some things that carry over um, from the patristic period and some things that are going to be way different. And so the three things, the three big events that stand out as prominent are first the rise and normalization of monasticism. And again, all this is going to be explained. And then the second thing is the fall of the Western Roman Empire. You've probably heard of the fall of the Roman Empire. We're going to get into that. And then the ascendancy of the papacy. You know, it's hard to talk about church history without talking about the Pope. And you might have realized thus far the Pope has been nowhere to be found because in the early church there was no Pope, despite what the Catholic Church would say. Um, we're going to get to the foundation of the papacy in this lesson. So those three things together are what constitute the Middle Ages. So first let me talk about monasticism. I could have taken this topic on at any point in probably the last eight lessons because monasticism isn't starting in the period we're in. It starts way before this, but it really is going to be the key ingredient that makes the Middle Ages possible. So that's why I saved it for now. So monasticism is going to be one of the most impactful movements in all of church history. If you want to know what monasticism is, just think of the word monk. Okay, Think of monks, the people who go off and live in a cave or live in a monastery. Think of nuns. Think of all that kind of stuff. That is monasticism. So let me quickly talk about the origin of the monks because you don't have monasticism without monks. In the late part of the third century, which would be the 200s, some Christians became so disgusted with the sinfulness of the Roman Empire that they thought the Christian thing to do was to isolate themselves from civilization itself. Now keep in mind, this is before Rome was a, a Christian empire. It was still pagan. And during that time, you're going to have some people say, I'm just getting away from it all. And then to justify it, they would look at guys like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was dwelling in the desert in the middle of nowhere, eating locusts and, you know, wearing camel hair. And, you know, by modern standards, he was just a weirdo. Yet he was God's prophet. And so they looked to John the Baptist and say, that's the way to do it. That's, that's the right life there. And so... Uh, so they're also going to practice asceticism. Now, I'll define that a little more later, but just to give you the fast answer, asceticism is when you, like, afflict your body by either starving it or beating it or what have you. They, they thought that that would make them holier. It would purge them of their lusts and stuff like that. Okay, so again, that all begins second half of the 200s, second half of the 3rd century. Once we get to the 300s, which is the 4th century, monasticism becomes more widespread. In fact, it was popular and it was highly respected. 
In fact, if, if you were going to be a bishop that was going to be respected, by the end of that century, you had to first be a monk. Uh, now, where did the first monks come from? Well, as far as we could tell, Syria and Egypt, probably Egypt was first. And then eventually it will spread out of Egypt and Syria. And so where do we even get this word monk? Well, it's not the first half of the word monkey. That's not where we get it. They have nothing to do with monkeys. It comes from the Greek word monakos. Um, uh, and monakos just means to live alone. So that's what a monk essentially in the beginning was, somebody who lived alone. The early monks all lived in isolation, solitary lifestyles. But you give it a little bit of time, you're going to have three kinds of monasticism that emerge. And so I quickly want to talk about those. First, you have hermits. Okay, hermits. We use this word, but I want you to know exactly what it means. For example, some people would say... Somebody very close to me is a hermit because they're very introverted. But introversion enough, or introversion itself is not enough to say somebody is a hermit. Okay? Hermits, it comes from the Greek word eremos, it's where, or heremos, and it means desert. So what does that tell you about hermits? Where do you think they lived? Forest, right? No, the desert. They lived in deserts. They were monks that lived isolated lives in harsh deserts because John the Baptist lived in a desert. And when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in a desert. And a lot of these hermits would live in caves because you can't stand out in a desert sun all day. So rather than living in a house, they would find a cave. Um, and the first hermits were not clergy. Okay? These weren't priests. These weren't presbyters. These weren't uh, bishops or anything like that. These were just regular Christians who were fed up with the Roman Empire both pre-Christian and post-Christian, and they were honestly fed up with the church leaders, thinking, look at these guys, they're worldly. We don't need them. We're going to go off. We're going to do our own thing in the desert. And so what they were seeking was greater spirituality and faithfulness. And so I'm going to tell you about the most famous hermit, the most famous desert monk. His name was Anthony. Sometimes he's called Saint Anthony. His life dates are 251 to 356. And yes, the math is right. The man lived to be 105 years old. Okay, so when people say, didn't people back then, weren't you considered ancient if you were 30? No, that's stupidity. They had the same lifespans we have today. It's just the thing is, a lot of them died before 20 because of disease. But if you made it past 20, <laughs> you had a great immune system. You're going to live our normal lifespans. This guy, 105, a real old guy. Now, we know about him because he was... Uh, very close with Athanasius. Remember, Athanasius was the famous bishop of Alexandria, the, the Trinitarian that really helped, um, really, he, how do I put it? He won the empire to Trinitarian orthodoxy, meaning, in other words, you had a heretical form of Christianity that took over the empire called Arianism, and this one man's just determination to stick by the truth brought the whole empire back to the truth. That, it's that Athanasius. And he was really close with Anthony, and he wrote a biography of Anthony called The Life of St. Anthony, and this is going to spread the idea of desert monasticism all over the Roman Empire. So let me talk a little bit about this Anthony, this man who lived an extremely long and impactful life. He was born to a rich family, but as a young man, he gave his life to the Lord and he decided he was going to sell all his wealth and he gave it to the poor. The one thing that the rich young ruler would not do when Jesus um, spoke to him, Anthony's like, I'll do it. Sold everything, gave it all to the poor. And then he retreats to the desert in Egypt near the Red Sea 
for 20 years, he has no contact with anyone. Imagine being by yourself for 20 years, but Anthony did it. In that time, what did he do in that 20 years? He prayed, he fasted, he studied scripture. Um, he claims he engaged in fierce battle with demons. Um, so modern, you know, psychologists would say he was just hearing voices in his head. You know, perhaps he was battling demons. I seriously doubt it was schizophrenia because he didn't have it after that 20 years. Um, so he was isolated that 20 years. He emerges from it, though. So he starts it when it's still the third century. He comes back to the world in the fourth century, and he gathers around himself disciples so he could pass on what he learned in that 20 years of solitude. Like when I was out there, I just reached the next level. And so I got to have disciples so I could tell them, you know, what that next level is. And so people who would talk to him, they really did think he was on a higher plane, higher level of spirituality. And there's lots of reports that he did miracles. Um, they seem verified for the time. Um, so again, I, I know uh, if you're a full-on cessationist, you'll say, no, once the Apostle John died, no miracles. But as I've said, the testimony of the early church shows that though they decreased in number, they still happened. And uh, St. Anthony would be one where, again, you got guys like Athanasius saying, no, this guy did miracles. Uh, his life probably had the biggest impact of attracting others to the monastic life. So you take his life, popularized by his biography written by Athanasius, and, uh, and you get monasticism going to the masses. Now, um, from him, this is where we get the image of people traveling far into the wilderness. We must find the sage, the guy who figured out everything. Who is he? His name is Anthony. And so they're going to travel deep into the wilderness, hoping to find him so he could give them the answers to life's questions, the secret to the universe. And, and the reason why people thought these monks knew this stuff was because they believed that being in the wilderness would lead to God giving you special revelation, that when you're alone and you're away from everyone and all the rest of the world is silenced out, then you could hear God. And of course, I know as you listen to that, some of that sounds like Eastern mysticism. Um, what I would say is this does not borrow from Eastern mysticism. I think it's the same general idea independently arrived at. Um, but it was Christians arriving at that idea. And of course, we know that's not how revelation works. We would think they were wrong, but in this time, people really thought this is how it worked. So people were going on their search for Anthony, and then the idea is when, when they would find him, um, he would get so mad that people found him, and so he would just go deeper into the wilderness to make it even harder to find him. You know, kind of like Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. The only difference is that movie was horrible, and Anthony was apparently a big shot, you know. Anthony is what Luke Skywalker should have been in that movie, a true sage rather than a loser that force projects himself and then dies from it. Anyway, sorry. Um, so here's the thing. Only the most significant questions would make it to Anthony because he would have his disciples, you know, field the, the weak sauce questions. But if somebody asks a real good question and his disciples are like, wow, we're not equipped to answer this, then they knew how to get deeper into the wilderness to find Anthony and, and get, that, get that answer. So... All the stuff you think about, like in movies and stuff like that, it all comes from Anthony. He's the guy who sets, I guess you could say, the archetype of it. So again, the hermit was one form of monasticism. The hermit is by himself in the desert. Now, the next kind is called kenobites. Okay? And you might say, well, what are they biting? No, it has nothing to do with that. It combines the words koinos, which means common, and bios, 
which means life, as in biology, right? So common life. So that could tell you what this is about. Canobites, rather than being monks by themselves in a cave, these are people who are going to live with other monks. It's going to be a community of monks. Like, why do this by yourself when you could do this with a team of people? You know, and, and the guy that really started this, his name was Pacomius. Uh, his life dates are 290 to 346. He was a native of southern Egypt, former soldier, and then again he gives his life to Christ, gives that all up, and he tries the monastic life alone at first as a hermit. Um, he's he's going to do what Anthony did, but after a while, around the year 320, he's you know he's going to say, "Why do this alone when we could accomplish so much more together?" And so what he's going to do is he's going to found the first monastic community. So you're going to have a community of monks, and it's going to be in the Egyptian village of Tabernese. Now, what did they do? Well, Pacomius set up rules for them. And, and the way it worked is they would work, they would pray, and they would eat together. All those things happened. They worked together, ate together, prayed together. They shared all things in common. Nobody owned anything. They thought they were following the model of Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. Of course, what's happening there is different than what's happening in this monastic community, but that's where they got the, the idea from it. And so, as I said, Pacomius comes up with this rule put it back up there for a second. Pacomius comes up with this rule, which was a list of policies that govern the monastery. If you're going to be part of his monastery, this is what your life would look like. Okay, you have to adopt his rule. And people liked it so much that when these Kenobite communities started spreading all over the place, a lot of them are going to use the rule of uh, Pacomius. And so what the rule did is it listed the times and the schedule for all activities of the communion. We eat breakfast at this time. We work for these hours. We study and meditate on the scripture in these hours. We sing hymns at these hours. And it was the same every day, a very regimented uh, life. But it guarantees that each day you're doing a fair amount of work, a lot of studying, a lot of praying, and a lot of eating. And the thing is, they didn't take donations from anybody. They took care of themselves through their manual labor. They grew uh, crops and, and things like that that the community itself would then sell. So they were a self-sustaining, self-sufficient community of monks. Um, and so the last thing in Pycomius's rules, they had to give strict obedience to the monastery leader a.k.a. Pacomius. So if you're going to be part of a monastery, every monastery then in this Kenobitic system needs to have a leader, and that leader is called the abbot. Now, if you have a Catholic background or you know anything about uh, the Middle Ages, abbots were a big deal. Where does that word come from? The Aramaic word Abba. It's not actually a Latin word. It's Aramaic. It means daddy, father. And so of every community, there's one guy who's the father of that community. And again, what do... Catholics call their priests. Father, where did that come from? That didn't start within the church. It actually started in monasticism, which was a movement separate from the church at this time. Again, these aren't bishops at this point. Eventually they will be, but at first these are just laypersons doing their own thing. And, and again, once it becomes popular, then yes, the institutional church will adopt it, and you're going to see then a convergence of what happens in monasticism with what happens in the regular church. Um, so again, uh, the leader would be called an abbot, the community, communities would be called monasteries, um, eventually they'll be called convents and cloisters. Um, now, of course, in the eastern monasteries, they'll have some different um, titles than the ones in the west, but that gives you an idea there. 
Now, the third kind of monasticism are called the skeets. And these are some modern-day skeets in this picture. These are skeets that raise um, trauma dogs, I guess. You know, dogs that help people who, you know, have anxiety. And so hugging that little dog and, you know, having them lick you somehow will calm you down. But anyhow... That's not what skeets are all about. I'm just explaining this picture. But skeets was a form of group monasticism, but not as big. So uh, communities like Pacomius's could get pretty large, where the skeets are like, Jesus had 12, so we're going to have 12. We will be groups of 12. We'll have one leader. We're going to follow that model. And the reason why they're called skeets is because it started in Skeet, Egypt. Um, And they just wanted to model what you see in the Gospels. Now, the way it would work, though, is on Sundays, various skeets would merge together, and they would have a regular-sized worship service, Um, you know, and they would all share different roles of the worship service. But the point is, during the rest of the week, they did the monastic life and these small little groups of 12. Um, But they would come together and, uh, you know, do bigger things on Sunday. Now, I talked about three different kinds of monasticism. I need to also talk about three different kinds of monks, talking about them as individuals. And I find this hilarious and entertaining that people actually live this way. Um, Now, in the time, again, people thought this was amazing. I think this is some of the dumbest stuff in the world, but funny. So you got these different kind of monks. I already explained hermit. It means desert dweller. They dwelt in deserts. Obi-Wan Kenobi was a hermit living in the deserts of Tatooine, you know, waiting for Luke Skywalker to need him. But anyhow, that's not real. This is real. You had these real um, monks that lived in the desert. The next kind of monk was called an anchorite, which comes from uh, anachorane, which means to take to the hills. So this could mean if they lived up in hills... They'd be uh, anchorites, but eventually it came to mean those who live in small rooms. And this picture on the bottom right corner is, can you imagine living in that? That is a small space. But if you're going to be this kind of monk, you got to live. It's like smaller than a jail cell, but that's where you got to live, right? So that's an anchorite. Now, a dendrite lived in trees. This picture right here, this is an ancient icon where, hey, I'm going to build a hut in a tree. So every kid's dream to live in a tree house, that was life for these guys. And they would not come down for their, from their tree unless they absolutely had to. Now, the, my favorite were the stylists or the stylites. You had these ancient Roman pillars, and eventually they weren't holding anything up anymore, but the pillars were big. Somehow they got to the top of the pillar and just lived there. They weren't going to come down for anything. They're just on their pillar. There's only enough room for them. You try to climb up on their pillar, get down this my pillar. And so this is how they separate themselves from society, not by going far away, but by going above it. Um, which, again, it is fascinating. And then Adamites, you could almost guess. You know, this is named after, uh, named after Adam. These guys walked around nudie tootie in the wilderness because they're like, well, that's what Adam did before he fell. And so, um, and, and they weren't perverse. They just thought this was getting back to pre-fall conditions. And the weird thing is a lot of the monks that went out into the wilderness and some of the nudie tootie ones would actually tame animals. So they'd be walking around with lions and, you know, tigers and giraffes and monkeys all like this is their little entourage. And people would be like, wow, look at these guys. They're restoring the pre-fall conditions. Now, it is true that some of them eventually got eaten by those animals. And so, I mean, but then people think, oh, they must have sinned pretty bad. 
I would look at it and say, we are not the ones that remove the curse, the present evil age. God has to do all that when Jesus returns. But these guys thought with their holiness, they could, they could bring in a, a picture of that. It's almost like an inbreaking of the kingdom in a way that only Jesus could do it, but they thought they could do it. And yeah, yeah, I mean, look, you can tame animals. Um, you know, and, and I remember there was that that old Simpsons episode where Homer thought he saw God. So then he's walking around in his backyard with his little fur coat and all of a sudden little squirrels and raccoons start climbing on his shoulder and birds land on his head as, as if you become this monk in the wilderness, you become one with nature. They were poking fun at this idea, but people back then, you know, they, 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 did, they did believe that. And I'm going to tell you, like, everything I just said here, Although it's funny to me, it was serious back then, and these were the most popular Christians on the planet. The average person that would not live on a pillar, or not live in a tree, or not live in a small room, or not live in a cave, the average person looked at these guys with great respect. Like, look what these guys do for the Lord, and they thought they were doing it for us, right? Because, you know, the idea back then is demons and Satan are most active out in the wilderness where people aren't. And even Satanists today and occult and witchcrafts, where do they do all their sacrifices and stuff? Away from people out in the wilderness. And so because demonic activity, and even Jesus talks about when a demon's cast out, it roams around in like waterless places and and, and things like that. And so they're like, you know what, that's where demonic activity is going to be heaviest. And so they felt like by these these guys going out there and battling demons like St. Anthony, that's keeping Satan and his demons busy out there, and they're staying away from the cities. Now, again, is that true? Maybe to a small degree, but not to what they thought. But because they thought this, these monks were very popular. People respected and really liked the monks. Now, one more thing. There's another kind of monk, women monks. And we know what they're called, right? Nuns. Nuns. And so monasticism was not limited to men. And in previous lessons, I talked about that woman who really liked John Chrysostom, but they never got together. She was a nun. Um, I talked about how St. Jerome, when he moved to Jerusalem, a whole bunch of nuns followed him and he founded an abbey there. And so for me to say all that means monasticism was already a thing by then. I just never explained it then because I was going to explain it now. And so you want to know where nuns come from, not from the institutional church, not at first, but from monasticism. Remember, this is a lay movement. And so, you know, a lot of women are like, I don't want to marry, Um, not because they're feminists. They just felt they wanted to serve God with their whole life. And so they're going to go off into deserts. I don't know if any nuns were living on top of pillars, Um, but the, the thing is, you know, and a lot of ladies tend to be, you know, more social. And so the Kenobitic form of monasticism will probably appeal to the, the women more. And so why are they called nuns? Because the Latin word for monk, nanas, the feminine form is just nun. Um, so anyhow, their monasteries were called nunneries. And the leader wasn't called an abbot, but an abbess. And uh, obviously they were segregated from the male monasteries because if they weren't, well funny business that they don't intend might happen. So um, so that kind of gives you the different kinds of monks. I've given you the three different kinds of monasticism. Now let me tell you a little bit about their asceticism, um, this self-inflicting. And again, this is all going to make sense for those of you who know anything about Catholicism, where some of the practices come from. Okay, so the monks would deny themselves food and other necessities. And this became, and let me backtrack first, this wasn't a Christian idea. 
This was a popular way of life in Rome before Rome was Christian because Neoplatonism said this is what the virtuous person does. They deny themselves. And that was in the third century. Neoplatonism called for asceticism. Well, remember, a lot of the educated folks that became Christians were first Neoplatonists, and some of these ideas carried over with them. Now, once Rome becomes Christian... The same idea carries over to these monks. Let's afflict ourselves. Um, But they're going to add one more form of affliction. Withhold sex from yourself. And this is where celibacy comes from. The idea of of celibacy, that if you're going to be holy before God, you don't marry, you remain single your whole life. And by the end of the 4th century, so we're talking late 300s, most Christians, if you could go back and poll them, most Christians believe that celibacy was superior to marriage. Like if you get married at that time, you're like, well, it's just because I'm an inferior Christian. Those guys who take the vow of chastity, those guys are the, like the, they're the superstars. They're, they're, they're the real Christians. It's the higher life. And eventually you get congregations that say, we will not follow a bishop who is not celibate. So you want to know where this comes from. Again, it wasn't that a revelation came from, you know, came to the Pope and said, thou shalt all be celibate. It's that monasticism was highly popular. The celibate life by the church itself eventually be, was seen as a, as a higher form of living. And then people started demanding that their bishops be this way. And then when you start to think, like you think of those fifth century theologians I talked about, um, Augustine, Jerome, Chrysostom, all of them were celibate. None of them married. You even go back before that, Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, all of them, monks of some form, celibate. So you think of all the biggest names that made the biggest impact in the patristic era. These were people who took the vow of of chastity. And so this way of life was so esteemed by the 5th century that every major churchman henceforth was going to be a celibate ascetic. And, I, and I'm telling you this, that celibacy, where you force yourself into this, is a form of asceticism. It's self-denial. Now, Paul did say that he wishes people would be like him and so forth, and that's where people are going to get that idea. You could serve the kingdom more fully. But this is a, this is a gift that's not given to all. And Jesus makes it clear. And it's not a requirement to be a pastor or to be a leader in the church. The scripture also makes that clear. The qualifications for a pastor and overseer is husband of one wife. So they can be married. But at some point, this becomes the rule over against scripture. And that's when it becomes wrong. When you say this is what has to be done, a person can't be a bishop or pastor without it, that's when it becomes, uh, becomes wrong. And these bottom bullets here, the monasteries specialized in this. If you're going to be a monk, you have to take a vow of chastity. And so eventually, when it becomes clear that the church won't accept bishops that aren't celibate, where do you think the best place you're going to find uh, for a pool? Where do you think the best place you're going, to, you're going to look to find a pool of bishops? Now the monasteries, right? Because the institutional church isn't necessarily training people to be like this. But the monasteries are. So now all the best priests and bishops are going to spend some time as monks where they had to swear this vow. And then when they come out, they're already living this way. And then the churches want them to be their their leaders. And so because of this, this is what's going to eventually make it to where monasticism stops being just a layperson thing. And now it's going to be part of the institutional church. And eventually, It's going to be the leaders, the clergy become the monks, and then the laypersons not.
not so much anymore, if that, if that makes sense. So the following three things are going to become normative for monks in the Middle Ages. You had to take a vow of poverty. Poverty was designed to help you get over materialism. You had to take a vow of chastity in order to defeat lust. And you had to take a vow of obedience. Obedience to who? To the abbot, right? And that is to help you overcome self-will because we all want to be our own God. We all want to do, do things our way. So the vow of obedience um, helps you with that. Now, how many of you have heard that priests in the Roman Catholic tradition have to take the vow of poverty? the vow of chastity, and the vow of obedience, but obedience not to an abbot, but to who? The Bishop of Rome. And so this is where this, and I'm going to show you in this lesson how we get from it just being from the abbot to actually the Bishop of Rome. But this is where it starts. Now, I do need to also talk about the difference between Eastern monasticism and Western monasticism. Remember, Eastern deals with the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, like we're talking about Turkey, uh, Egypt, you know, all those areas, Greece, all that. And then the Western side is from like Italy all the way to Spain and England and, you know, North Africa and stuff like that. So the early monks of Egypt were called the Desert Fathers. And since they were the first, they're going to have the big major influence on future generations of monks. Their theology was built heavily on the writings of Origen. If you remember Origen, even though he had some weird ideas, he had some great ideas, but he was also an ascetic as well. When he was young... He read the passage literally about if your right hand causes you to lust, cut it off. So he went and castrated himself. And then later he realized, man, I wish I would have interpreted it allegorically. Well, too late, Mr. Origen. But he was still he was still an ascetic. He was still an ascetic person after that. And so, again, the Desert Fathers wanted to to copy that. Now, their practices and their philosophy, you could find them in, in some writings called the Sayings of the Fathers. But where we even get more of what they thought and did is from uh, Evagrius Ponticus, 345 to 399. He was a native of Asia Minor or Turkey that settled in Egypt. And in the 380s, he wrote something that summed up what the Desert Fathers did and believed. That then became a framework for all other kinds of monasticism afterwards. Syrian and Egyptian monks, you know, because they're also in, in the East, um, Syrian and Egyptian monks, they tended towards isolation. But when you go up to Greece and Asia Minor, they believe that, no, you're not supposed to separate from society. You're supposed to be a monk within society because we're supposed to, to help society. And so you want to know some of the most famous Hellenistic monks or, or Greek ones was Basil of Caesarea, one of the Cappadocian fathers that I talked about many lessons ago. He shaped the Greek version and he said it needs to be, surround, it needs to be connected to the culture. So in Eastern monasticism, you know, specifically the Greek form, he writes a list of rules, which, by the way, he wrote these in the 300s, and they're still in use today in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So that's how, how long they've been following a particular set of rules for their, for their monks. But pretty much his rule says this, that monasteries uh, will not be cut off from society, but they're actually going to educate children. So the kids learn to read, write, and all that from the monks. Um, they're going to nurse the sick. And anybody's traveling through towns, the inns are dangerous, they're going to be able to stay in the monasteries. So they were a help to people. By the 5th century, this became, by the 5th century in the Eastern type of monasticism, it became an accepted rule that only a bishop could establish a monastery. And that then makes sense of how when Jerome fled Rome and went to, to Israel to live, all those nuns followed him because he was a bishop and he could found 
a monastery. Um, so only a bishop. It came. I guess what I'm trying to say there is by the time you get to the 400s, it can't be a lay movement anymore. It takes a bishop to say, okay, we're going to have a monastery over here. Now, Western monasticism, that's going to be what's probably more pertinent to us because we're Christians that come out of the West, the Western tradition. Monastic communities start later. They come after the Eastern ones, but I think they do it better, to be quite honest. And so they're going to begin to emerge in the mid-4th century. Uh, One of the big... um, Motivators of that was the Life of Anthony biography written by Athanasius. It was translated into Latin. Once somebody translated it into Latin and the Western Empire can now read it, they're like, wow, this all makes sense, the the, the things this Anthony did. Furthermore, the West had their own highly esteemed monk. I guess you could say their own version of Anthony. Didn't live as long, but it was a guy named Martin of Tours. 335 to 397 are his life dates. He was an ex-soldier. He was a zealous anti-Aryan. And what he did is he founded a loose association of hermits in France in the 360s. And then afterwards, he starts promoting monasticism all over the place. And he becomes the bishop of Tours in 372, which was a significant position. And then from Tours, his monks then start spreading throughout the rest of France, evangelizing the pagans. And by the way, France wasn't France yet. I've told you that before, right? France was called Gaul. It's not going to be called France until a little later, and I'll talk about that actually in this particular lesson. But much of Gaul was still pagan. It was the missionaries trained by this guy, I mean the monks trained by this guy, that were the missionaries and went around and Christianized the whole region. Eventually, um, oh, and another important guy was John Cassian. I talked about him last time because Cassian was the guy who came up with semi-Pelagianism or semi-Augustinianism, depending on how you're going to talk about it. He is best known for uh, Western monasticism, and he was a a disciple of... um, of the guy, uh, Evagrius Pont- uh, Ponticus, uh, Ponticus, sorry, the guy who wrote everything that let us know about the Desert Fathers, John Cassian learned from him and then brought that back to the West and, and spread it. He founded a monastery and nunnery in Marseille, France, or Gaul, in 415. Now, a little more about Western monasticism. So I want to get done with monasticism. It enjoyed enthusiastic, enthusiastic support from leading churchmen from the beginning. So it wasn't a lay movement in the West really ever. Um, the churchmen liked it from the beginning. So think about it. Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, they're all the big shots of the West, and they were monks. Uh, they were supporters. They were participants, and so they gave it respectability and authority. And I'm going to, this is my opinion, but I think it's fair to say this, that it was a more cultured version than what you have in the East. And what I mean by that, in the East, you just prayed, fasted, and studied scripture. In the West, you did all of that, but you also studied literature, both pagan and Christian literature, the classics, the greats. You studied grammar, you studied math, geometry, all that kind of stuff. It became the place of higher learning because they believed that you should cultivate the mind. So not just the soul but also the mind. And this was an old Roman principle that the Western Empire kept. And for that reason, the Western form of monasticism is going to attract converts from the Roman aristocracy. You're going to get the most educated Romans becoming monks in the West. And that's going to have a big impact. And I'll explain why when I get to this bullet. But the Roman noble Cassidorius lived 477 to 570. He almost lived 100 years. 
Um, he popularized this union of the ascetic life of self-denial, but fusing it with culture. He's pretty much taken the theological and the secular and saying you need to be master of both of them. Now, because of this, Western monasteries saved European civilization. When the Roman Empire fell to a bunch of barbarians, why do we still know anything about the Romans? Why do we still have anything that carried over? Because these guys became the keepers of all the ancient knowledge because they had it in their monasteries and they studied it. And so they provided this continuity from um, the ancient past to, I guess you could say, the new order that was going to arrive after the Roman Empire fell. And so, uh, yeah, that was huge. The monasteries were the repositories of that preserved knowledge, and they became the vital centers of education in the Western Catholic world. When you get to the high Middle Ages, universities are going to be founded. They're going to come out of the monasteries. So the whole university system, you send your kids to the university. Who came up with that? These guys, right? And so the Western monks were also the greatest missionaries of the time. And if you think about it, I mean, even at the end of the patristic age, but definitely in the Middle Ages, it was the monks that were going to be the best missionaries. Why? They weren't married. So they were free from their ties of marriage. They were used to poverty. So they knew how to go without meals. They knew how to, they they would physically hurt themselves. So if you're going to beat them, they're going to be like, you hit like a girl. I hit myself harder than that, you know? And so because of that, they were, they were very ready. They were hardened um, for this. And so they were equipped to carry the faith to pagan lands, Uh, both England and Germany become Christian. Like at this time, they were completely pagan. But England and Germany are going to become almost fully Christian because of the work of these these monks. So tying this to the, the Catholic Church, not yet the Roman Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church. In 529, you have a guy named Benedict who founds a monastery just south of Rome, and his monastery is still there today. And it kept the rule of other monasteries, but he added one more. And most monks today follow the Benedictine order, which again was built on the other ones, but with this added rule, absolute submission to the local bishop. Okay, So if I'm a monk, my authority, the guy who tells me what to do, who my vow of obedience is to the local bishop. This now tied monasticism to the church and made it subordinate to the institutional church, and this will assist in the rise of the papacy a little later, and in the Pope becoming the number one guy in the West. Now, Augustine, the missionary, not Augustine of Hippo, this is a different guy with the same name, he was a Benedictine monk who was commissioned by Pope Gregory I. I believe Pope Gregory I was the first real Pope. Okay, so he was commissioned by this guy in 596 to go to England, and Augustine the missionary gets credit for converting England to Roman Christianity. Now, much of England was pagan, but Augustine discovered a far older version of Christianity that was already there. We don't know where that came from. Could it go back to the time of Paul? Possibly, but we call it Celtic Christianity. And uh, it was a good form of Christianity by and large. But it gave way to the Roman form. because So part of the missionary work was for pagans, but part of it was um, to bring an older form of Christianity into union with the, the institutional church. Later on, 
You're going to have an English monk named Boniface in the 8th century. He'll travel over uh, northeastern Europe and spread Roman Christianity to the Arians. Um, Now, I know you think, weren't the Arians defeated back in Athanasius' day and with the Council of Constantinople? Theologically, yes. But the Arians converted all these Germanic tribes. They're the ones that destroy the Roman Empire. So even though you get the Roman Empire to be Trinitarian, when the people who destroy them are Arians, it's like you got to do this all over again. But now these are strong, violent, barbaric people that are also Arians. And so it took a while to get rid of Arianism. And, and Boniface is going to be one of the guys who, at least in the northeastern part of Europe, um, brings real Christianity to the Arians. And so by that time, by the time you get to Boniface in the 700s, Benedictine monasteries, or monasteries excuse me, were throughout all of Western Europe, and it, they were rural, and these were the primary ministers to the average person. And again, they were completely tied to the local church. Most of the priests and bishops came out of them, and, and the people who were the monks working in the monasteries, ministering to the people and evangelizing, Again, they all answered to local bishops. And by this point, all the local bishops were answering to one bishop above all, the Bishop of Rome. So that's kind of where that comes from. Now, the last thing that I'll talk about when it comes to monasticism is Cluny. Not George Cluny, but Cluny, which was a a, a monastery. And so we're jumping forward to 910 here. So again, covering a lot of ground. Like with monasticism, if you notice, I started in the 300s. And now we're at 910, because I'm kind of giving it all to you um, at once, at least early monasticism. So what's going to happen is that the monasteries, by the time you get to the 10th century, were becoming very worldly. And some of the monks were into money and, and worldliness and things like that. And so the monks at Cluny says, no, we need to fix this. We need to make monasticism great again. I guess that's, you know, their form of maga. So they wanted to uh, ensure purity in their, their, their monasteries. And so they said, the only way we could do this is we have to turn all authority, all authority over to one guy. And we have to do whatever that one guy says. And so we got to make sure that this guy is all about purity. And at first... It was to the abbot, right? Because you might be thinking, or you should be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought they already did that. They gave their, their um, obedience to the bishops. Well, how did they end up getting worldly in the first place? You had worldly bishops at this time. The worldly bishops then tolerate worldly monks. And so they said, forget the bishops, we're going to pick an abbot. And the thing was, the bishop of Rome at this time was having some trouble uh, making sure all the other bishops were maintaining their loyalty and obedience to him. And so it was to that Pope's favor that you now had this extremely significant monastery breaking away from bishops and going independent again. And so he recognized them for it. He said, this is great what you're doing. I support it. I appreciate your effort. You don't have to be under the control of the local bishop. I'm given that order so those bishops can't try to come and force you under their control. And out of gratitude, the monks of Cluny say, you know what? We're going to be loyal to you. And so, and then all these other monasteries are like, yes, this is how we fix monasticism. And so now the Bishop of Rome is the only guy that they have to answer to. And so by this point, all of monasticism was under the complete control of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And so what began as a lay movement was now 
fully under the control of the Bishop of Bishops. So that's monasticism in a nutshell. That's the first thing that explains what we see in the Middle Ages. The second thing is the fall of Rome. And I'll try to talk about this as fast as I can. Um, but when it comes to the fall of Rome, you have a bunch of Germanic tribes for centuries that were being pushed out of their native lands of Poland, Russia, the Balkans. That's what we call those lands today. That's where the Germans originally lived. But how many of you have heard of Attila the Hun? Okay, you had the Huns, which were like they were where Mongolia is, a powerful uh, Asiatic people that were moving west and nobody could beat them at the time. The Huns moved into these Germanic people's areas. And so they then in turn ran from them and came westward, which brought them into Europe, brought them into the, the Roman Empire. Now, at first, these Germans, because they were small tribes, that's why they couldn't beat the massive Hun power. Um, but, but pretty much they, they formed these confederations where various tribes were united under a single chief. But even with their massive chiefdoms, they still cannot hold back the Huns. And so their thing is we will find safety in the Roman Empire. So they come into the Roman Empire. This starts as early as the second century. And so they migrate in from the north and Pretty much the Romans were able to keep them out for a long time. They put a whole bunch of military garrisons up on their northern borders and were keeping these immigrants out because they knew they could not absorb them and, and their economy was already struggling. But what's going to happen is the 4th and 5th centuries were not good for Rome. Civil wars, economic disasters, natural disasters. So as the Roman Empire starts losing money, starts losing its, its really its power, they could not stop the massive numbers of Germanic peoples who were coming in. They, they couldn't keep them out anymore. This is why Constantine in the 4th century, why do you think once he conquered the Roman Empire, why do you think he moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople? way over in Turkey to get far away from all these Germans who were coming in because he could see what was going to happen. Eventually, you will not be able. There's just too many of them and too few resources over here. This is going to collapse. If I could build something over there, it's going to outlast it. And it did. The eastern half of the Roman Empire lasts until the 1400s, a thousand years longer than the western half. So Constantine, what he did actually worked. Now, of course, it sets Western Europe on a completely different, uh, different course. So anyhow, um, let me explain the religious makeup of these Germanic peoples and then who they were and so forth. By the time you get to the 300s, the 4th century, the Germanic tribes and Romans, they now were very familiar with each other. Uh, and by this point, the barbarians were mostly Aryans. They were heretics. They converted to the Aryan form of Christianity, which isn't real Christianity. It's the form that says Jesus isn't God. It's pretty much what Jehovah Witnesses believe. Um, the Aryans fell into that. Um, now, some of the Goths, we call these German, Germanic peoples Goths. It just goes back to the, the old language that was spoken. Some of the Goths were converted by Aryan missionaries, specifically the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, the Lombards, and the Burgundians. Those were converted by Aryan missionaries. Others, especially the Visigoths, and by the way, if I remember right, I think Ostrogoths are Western. Ostro means Western. It's the Western Goths. And then the, um, the, Visi, uh, the Visigoths, I believe, if I remember right, are the Eastern Gothic peoples. And that's mainly talking about where they landed within the Roman Empire. Okay, And so pretty much with the Visigoths, 
came in to the Roman Empire in 376, and their chief decided, well, we're coming to the Roman Empire. If we're entering this empire, we're going to be the religion of the Roman Empire. Well, if you remember your dates, 381 was the Council of Constantinople. That is when Trinitarianism finally won and forever held the hearts of the Orthodox Church. 381. This is four years before that. In 376, Rome was ruled by an Arian. So these, these massive Gothic tribes come in. They're like, what's the religion here? The emperor's religion was Arianism. So that chief picked it, and that's what it said. It didn't matter that four years later they changed. The Roman Empire changed. These, the Visigoths stuck with that. And so that's going to definitely uh, be a problem. That's going to make us have to deal with Arianism for um, many centuries more to come. Now, some German tribes, a few of them remained pagan. Uh, the Franks, and so we have a Frank here. No, the Franks, um, the Angles, the Jutes, and the Saxons. And if you've ever heard the word Anglo-Saxon applied to the British, I'm going to explain where we get that from. These were Germanic people. Uh, and at first, they remained pagan. The Franks, the Angles, the Jutes, and the Saxons. What gods did they worship? Well, this is going to sound familiar if you're into Marvel. They worshipped Woden. Um, now, the Norse would call him Odin, but these guys called him Woden. He was the chief deity. They worshipped Thor, the god of thunder, Tiwaz, the god of war, Freya, the goddess of fertility, and Satyr, the water god. And I want you to, you, you want to know where we get our weekday names from? Okay, this is where we get them from, right? Because people that uh, conquered England back in this time were these Germanic pagans. And so Tuesday is Tiwaz's day. Wednesday is Woden's day. Thursday is Thor's day. Friday is Freya's day. And Saturday is Satyr's day day. And so when people are like, how could you celebrate Christmas? That's uh, pagan. I'm like, well, how could you go to work on Wednesday? That's Woden's day. You know, the thing is, honestly, it's like, listen, uh, yeah, that's, well, Sunday is uh, named after the Sol Invictus, the sun god. Monday, the moon god. Um, So yeah, like all those days as they've come to us have, their names come from paganism. But how many of you believe in the moon god? How many of you believe in Woden <laughs> or Odin? I, I know Anthony Hopkins is real, but he's not Woden, you know. Um, so the thing is, paganism's about belief. Do you believe in these gods? Are you doing their rites? No. Okay. The name of a day that was picked 1,700 years before you were ever born has no significance at all. That's just it's, that's just what the word is now. But nobody today is like, well, it's Thor's day. No, we just, Thursday, that's just what we call it. We're not thinking of Thor at all, right? And so anyhow, I just wanted to let you know that's where our weekdays come from. And here's the thing, pagan religion isn't going to last that long because it's a joke. It's not a deep religion. And so when these guys are confronted with Christianity, this kind of paganism can't last long against it. And, and that's the thing. That these were the, just the final holdouts. The rest already converted to a false form of Christianity, but the false form of Christianity was more compelling than their paganism. And then eventually they'll get brought to the real um, Christianity, the Orthodox Christianity. Now, getting back to the fall of Rome, it was clear Rome was in decline when the Arian Emperor Valens was killed by the Visigoths in 378 
after the Romans treated them badly. The Romans said you could live within our borders, but then they treated them really badly. So the Visigoths rebelled. Valens are like, they can't possibly win. They're just ragtag barbarians. Valens gets killed. The Visigoths do win. And so then Theodosius becomes the emperor. And remember, he's the guy who makes Rome Orthodox Christian for once and for all. He's like, this Arian nonsense is going away. And Theodosius was strong. So he reasserted control and the Visigoths kind of backed off. But he said, you could stay here in our empire and we won't treat you bad. But you've got to be our allies. And what happens with this is now that they're allies, the Romans are like, we're having a hard time maintaining our army. We can't afford it. These guys are strong warriors. So they now become allies and even start joining the Roman army. You fast forward a few decades, the majority of Roman soldiers are actually Gothic or German. And that's going to ultimately, in one way, spell the end for the western half of the Roman Empire. Now, after Theodosius died, the Visigoths under Alaric, um, they want more territory. They're like, well, Theodosius is dead. He was strong. His heir is not. And so this guy successfully comes in, he captures Rome, and he sacks it in 410. This is why Augustine wrote City of God. Because when Rome got sacked and set on fire, the the Christians were like, oh my gosh, the world's going to end. The kingdom's been destroyed. He's like, this isn't the kingdom of God. This is just Rome. And so this is why why he writes City of God, to give, you know, the people a political theology that actually makes sense. Now, at the same time, Rome ends up burning the Vandals, who are another form of Goths. They were pressured and instigated by the Visigoths to move westward. So they're going to take over France and Spain, and then they're going to cross into North Africa and take over North Africa. And that's when Augustine died. He died in Hippo when the Vandals were besieging, um, were besieging a Hippo. Now, the Vandals were Aryan. Um, which is which the, the bad thing with that is with their navy, they control North Africa and they persecuted Orthodox Christians. Seriously, they killed a lot, a lot of real Christians. Um, so the Vandals taking over North Africa was not a good thing. Um, now, the defense of Italy was in the hands of the Roman army. But as I said, by the time you get to the mid-400s, the Roman army was mainly Germanic at this point. Its emperors were Germanic. So the Roman emperors in the West were just puppets. They had to do what the military general said. And if the Germanic general didn't like an emperor of Rome, he could depose him and replace him with someone else. So the official fall of the Roman Empire is dated to 476 when one of the Germanic generals finally disposes the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustus, Augustus List, which is interesting. He's named after the first, uh, the, the founder of Rome and the first Roman emperor. Romulus, the founder of Rome, Augustus, first Roman emperor. Well, the child emperor did not last long. And so, and here's the thing, Rome was a shell before this. There was no way, by 476, it was, already, it was already practically fallen. But at this point, this is just when the tree finally goes timber. The Roman Empire is gone. But you want to know what's interesting is the German conquerors, by this point, considered themselves Romans, even though they weren't. So in their head, nothing changed. But in reality, everything changed. But what was interesting is because they saw themselves as Romans, they still saw themselves as being under the authority of the real emperor in uh, Constantinople, which is fascinating. Now, that's not going to last forever, but it does last for a while. Now, this is going to kind of help you understand Europe today. I know you probably can't see that map very well. That's why you need to get LASIK. No, I'm just kidding. It's that light bulb. Um, 
So listen, over the years, tribal conflicts divided these Germanic forces to where the fallout was as follows. The Visigoths um, settled in Spain. The Ostrogoths settled in Italy. The Franks and Burgundians settled France. Connect the words there. France was Gaul until the Franks took over France. Why is France called France now? Because the Franks took it over, okay? So even though France and Germany have fought each other and I always make fun of the French and all that, they're ethnically German. Now, of course, they mixed with the Celt. The Gallic people were Celtic. Um, and the Franks are going to mix with them and, event, and, and the Burgundians. And they settle France, and that's what becomes France. The Vandals will settle north, uh, uh, Northwest Africa, and the Anglos, Jutes, and Saxons conquer Britain. Why do we call English people Anglo-Saxons? It's Germanic. And by the way, let me jump fast forward. Why did Hitler not want to invade England? In World War II, why did he just want to bomb them into uh, submission? He would invade everybody else. But when it came to England, and they would have won the war if they would have just invaded, but he's like, nope, we're not going to invade England. The reason was he knew they were primarily Germanic. He's like, they're our cousins. They're the master race as well. We can't do this. So his whole little understanding of this actually saved England. It was his stupidity. Because honestly, if you're fighting your enemy, you just do what it takes to win. You don't think, well, they got the master blood race as well, so we're going to keep them alive and give them a chance to destroy us later. I mean, hey, I'm glad he did. Glad he was that dumb. But we call British folks Anglo-Saxons for this reason. Now, the thing is, the Anglos, the Jutes, and the Saxons, and the Vandals had the horrible policy of ethnic cleansing. So when they would move, like the, the Vandals tried to kill all the natives of North Africa. And so what is left there are the few survivors mixed with the Vandals, okay? And when it comes to the Anglos, Jutes, and the Saxons, they tried to kill all the original Celts of England, and they did kill a lot of them, but not in Wales, not in Ireland. Ireland was Celtic, and not in Scotland. In some parts of England uh, weren't as well. So that's why today you would say that the, the British people are a mix of the survivors of the Celts, mixing with the Anglos, Jutes, and the Saxons, and all that. So it's all, all mixed together today. But Apart from the Anglos, Jutes, Saxons, and Vandals, the guys like the Franks and the, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths, okay, they took over the rest of Europe. Um, they were ethnically in the minority, and they didn't want to kill all the natives. They said, we got control because we got the military, but we're not as smart as the Romans were. We don't have the cultural achievements that they have. We don't have the literature they have. We don't have the ancient religion that they have. So those Germanic conquerors of the continental European countries said, you know what, we need these people to teach us. And so they had the natives become their advisors, their politicians, and they ran the state for them. So eventually what you have is these Germanic peoples become almost a mix of Rome and German together, and it becomes something new. And so that's why I'm saying if you go back to the Roman days, Europe was not Europe as we know it today. After Rome fell and these various Gothic groups settled these various places that we call Spain and France and England and all that stuff, that is when the Europe as we know it became Europe. It was because of the fall of Rome. Okay, And so that's pretty much just wanted to, to point that out. Now, one of the big events that happened was the conversion of the Franks. Around 496, 
you're going to have the young Frankish king, Clovis. Remember, the Franks stayed pagan at first. They weren't Aryans. They were just pagan. You have the Frankish king, Clovis. He marries a Burgundian princess, Clotilda. She was Catholic. She tries, Clotilda tries to convince him to be Christian, but he's like, no, I follow Woden, you know, or whatever, and, and Thor. But in 496, he finds himself in the military fight of his life where he was outgunned and could lose his power in his kingdom. He's fighting other Germans called the Alemanni, and he'd been praying to his gods. They did nothing for him. He kept losing. He started to think, maybe my wife is right. Maybe this paganism's all nonsense. And so he prayed to God and said, listen, my wife talks about you being the one true God. I promise you I will become a Christian if you grant me victory over my enemy on this. And even in his prayer, and we know what he prayed because... Um, I'm trying to remember who his chronicler was, but it was one of the famous monks was very close to him and, and, and wrote it down. Uh, but pretty much he, he admitted in his prayer to God, he's like, look, my gods don't do anything. They're probably not real. So show me that you're real. And his victory was granted to him. His enemy was killed. He became the undisputed ruler of uh, the Franks and the Burgundians. And there was really no one to challenge him. He was almost immediately baptized. And you have to understand the way a Germanic... Uh, tribes worked back then. If the chief changes religions, the whole nation has to change religions. So missionaries didn't even have to go and convert the Franks after this. It was just foregone conclusion. They're Catholic um, because Clovis converted to Catholicism. And, and by the way, not Roman Catholicism yet, but it's getting close to that at this point. Um, and so the Franks became the first Catholic kingdom among these new Western nations, France was the first Catholic kingdom. And Western Catholics praise him. They're like, we have a Catholic king. And they started comparing him to Constantine. This is the same thing that happened to Constantine. And now the Bishop of Rome starts thinking, wait a minute, I have a king with an army, a kingdom that is under my religious influence, and he could be my protector. I don't need Constantinople anymore. And this is what's going to help Rome separate from them. And so uh, when it comes to the conversion of the rest of the, the tribes that were Aryan, it takes a while. It took patient and labor-intensive evangelism to win them over. Some still resisted, like the Vandals in Africa and the Ostrogoths in Italy. In fact, it took Justinian, the last great emperor of the east of Constantinople, he comes over and destroys them with military invasions. Um, this was their last attempt to try to bring the West back under the original Roman control. But after Justinian died, the Gothic kingdoms regained their independence. Europe, as we know it, um, became this fractured area of, of nation state. Well, nations, not necessarily nation states yet. Um, and once Justinian died, these guys reestablished Arianism, but eventually the Frankish kingdom, Clovis's conversion is huge because once uh, Clovis, is, his kingdom is going to be strong. And eventually you end up with a guy named Charlemagne. I haven't got there yet. We're not going to get there in this lesson. Charlemagne, under the Frankish power, conquers all of Europe. And you get almost a second round. It's called the Roly, or Roly, the Holy, Roly, the Roly Roman Empire. No, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, wasn't holy, wasn't Roman, wasn't an empire. But, um, but you're, you're, you're going to get that and uh, the Pope's going to crown Charlemagne. So again, the conversion of, of Clovis is going to lead a couple centuries later to one of his descendants um, pretty much 
Arianism is going to be gone because of those conquests. And so just uh, some stuff to keep in mind. Um, now, the consequences of Rome's fall. Um, and Rach, could you check Dessa out just so that they don't have to be in that class too long? I started late, so I'm going to just go a little, little after. But anyhow, getting back to this, the consequences of Rome's fall and Europe's new Germanic character. Okay? As the government abandoned the West to deal with the Germans, the bishops were able to maintain their churches and their Christianity. So just because the government and the civilization fell, guess what remained the same? Guess what was untouched by the fall of Rome? the church. That, sh that is a testament to the institutional strength and unity of the church in the West, to where the political order that had been there for a thousand years could fall, and yet the church is still there doing the same things with its same leaders, and the people who conquered are impressed with this church, right? And so this is going to bring, and they're going to, the church is going to be able to convert most of the Germanic tribes to Christianity over time. And so this brings a lot of benefits. First, it allowed the West to transfer its allegiance away from the old Roman government and give it to the new Germanic order. And as they give it to this new Germanic order, they don't have to give it to Constantinople. This will forever start to separate the East and the West. Second, it brought a lot of new subjects. Like there's a lot of new people to become Christians that the church can now be their spiritual leaders. So that brought more people, strong people under their influence. Third, the eventual uniting of the Germans under the Franks, under Charlemagne, allowed for a united Western government that could then be controlled by the church. And, and the, the key thing there is um, that's going to lead to theocracy rather than papism. And I'll bring that up again in a little bit. But converting the, the Germans from paganism also, as I alluded to, wasn't that difficult because their religion was not a strong religion. There was not a traditional way of worship. Whereas when these people came in contact with the established church of the West, it impressed them. And Christianity was more ancient than the pagan religions by this point. And so the Germans, they're like, we have no ancient method. We can't even tell you where our theology came from. But this, this, this is something that is, is better. Now, these changes benefited the Bishop of Rome. See, the greatest difficulty was with Aryan Germans rather than the pagans. But when they eventually convert, who's the premier bishop in the West that was looked upon as the one to show them the light? The Bishop of Rome. And so the end result was you had this strong militaristic people who were strong enough to defeat the Western Roman Empire, great warriors, they're the future of Europe, and they're loyal to one bishop the Bishop of Rome. This is why, I'm telling you, this is all how we get the Pope. It's not because Jesus founded the papacy. That's not how it happened. This is how it happened. And so with this new political structure forming, the Bishop of Rome was able to avoid the Caesaropapism of the East. Remember, that's where the emperor rules the church. That's how the emperors of Constantinople did it. They could tell the church what to do. In this case, it's a theocracy. The church could tell the kings what to do. And kings are going to be under the influence of the Pope. And we're going to see later at the high end of the Middle Ages, a Pope could literally destroy a king just by putting the whole country under what's called an interdict. And then the whole country will revolt against that king until he obeys the Pope. So this is the exact opposite of what you have in the East. And I'll explain that when we get there. It's going to be a while before we get there. But it's, it's, it's an opposite form of the relationship between the church and state. Um, eventually, Germanic rulers are going to derive their authority from the Pope. Like, you've got to be crowned by the Pope. 
And, and that's the only way you have a legitimate claim to the throne. And what starts this off is when Charlemagne is made the sole emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And on Christmas Day in the year 800, who put the crown on his head? Gandalf. No, the Pope. Okay. And, and where do you think Lord of the Rings gets that? Why did Gandalf put the crown on the head of Aragorn? Because Tolkien's taking all this, all the, the rich history from the Middle Ages of Europe and bleeds it into the, his story. But anyhow, uh, so the Pope crowned Charlemagne the king. And again, the reason this all occurred is because the Catholic Church was the one and only great Roman institution that survived the collapse of Rome in the West. And it was malleable to now absorb the new political order and actually sort of rule it. Um, so the fall of Rome was actually the best thing that could have happened for the Catholic Church. It really is. It made it stronger than it ever would have been, which then brings us, I'm going to talk as fast as I can real quick. This brings us to Gregory the First. Gregory, no, just kidding, I'm not going to talk that fast. But Gregory the Great, he is the first pope, in my opinion. Now, some will say Pope Leo, some will say Pope Innocent. They were bishops of Rome, but when you think of the pope, and the characteristics that the Pope has to have, he is the first guy to have it. And so uh, he lived from 540 to 604. He was only Pope for the last 14 years of his life. But he was the perfect leader to make this all happen. He was able to exploit this political situation. And so it's during uh, his, his papacy that the, the Pope itself becomes the great political and spiritual power that dominates Europe for the next thousand years. He's the one who sets it up. Now, again, he's building on what came before him, but he's the one who successfully ties it all together. Popes before him had to listen to the emperor of Constantinople, not Gregory. He actually ignored them. He realized, well, wait a minute. We're now in a Western Europe where each kingdom has a certain set of land and it has its own chiefs. And some of them, like the Franks, are big enough to have a king. Over time, the papacy acquired a lot of land in the center of Italy, and they owned it like a chief would. He's like, so I can be a political figure, not just a religious figure, because I have land, I have, yeah, I have the territory, I have the right to rule it. So he starts making treaties with Germanic kingdoms in Western Europe, treaties which make them all loyal to him because he's their spiritual father. This is unheard of. He's acting like a president or a king or a chief, like a head of state. And as I said, he could do it because of they, they own the land in Italy. Now, later, they're going to justify their owning of that land with fraud, but that's not going to be in this lesson. Um, but because of these alliances, later popes can now say, hey, we have military alliances with you. We need you Frankish kings to supply troops to protect us so that we don't need the Byzantines. And when they don't need the Byzantines, they don't need Constantinople. They don't have to listen to them anymore. Okay, and so Gregory, that's the first thing. He politically severs them from Constantinople by making his own treaties with the new uh, kings and chiefs of, of Western Europe. He's also responsible for sending missionaries to Britain to Christianize the pagan rulers there, the Franks, the, or I mean the Angles, the Jutes, and the Saxons. He was largely successful at that. Um, he also strengthened the dependence of the bishops of the West upon the Roman bishop. Uh, he was able to strengthen their subservience under him to where they realize we all answer to the one bishop in the West. He was the first to successfully unify German political power with the Roman church power into this theocracy where the church was on top. And he was the first to say that anybody who was going to be consecrated as a bishop has to have his prior consent. So to be a bishop anywhere in the West, you have to have the Pope sign off on it. So you can't even be a bishop without him now. 
And so that's going to make a lot of bishops loyal to him. Um, it was the declaration of his authority over all the rest. He made his Gregorian chant the official music of the Western Church. You may have heard of Gregorian chants, named after him. He solidified the sacramental system permanently. Only bishops and priests could do the sacraments. And again, they all have to be appointed um, or approved through the Pope. And sacraments, again, can only come from those who have the apostolic succession as identified by the, the Western, um, you know, the, the, the Bishop of Rome. And so it's just, it's interesting when you think about it. You know, having control over the governments, you know, through the religious authority, having control over the bishops, having control over the monks, that is Roman Catholicism having control over the sacraments. That's Roman Catholicism. And one man being at the top of all that, that's Roman Catholicism. Although the title Pope is applied to guys before Gregory, none of them had all those things I just mentioned. So that's why I say he's the first Pope. So when I see the bumper sticker that says, following the same pastor for the last 2,000 years, you know, and it says Catholic on it, it's just not true. It's not true. The five nine, or yeah, the 590s. 600s, you know, 606, that's when you got the Pope, not 3080, okay? So just wanted to throw that out there. Now, the last thing I'm going to talk about, and this will be fast, is one thing that accounts for Gregory's success is um, the, he built it on the success of earlier bishops of Rome. Um, so just to trace the tree of how it happened, Anicetus, very early, 154 to 165, was the first monarchical bishop of Rome. Remember, the church was still new at this point, but eventually the church of Rome gets so big they have to have uh, multiple churches, and each one has its own preacher. Well, he became the one in charge of all of them, so you have hierarchy. Again, not the papacy as we think of it yet, but this was one piece that had to be there. You fast forward a couple centuries, this piece was now taken for granted. Then you get Innocent the First, 402 to 417. He was the first to use Petrine tradition. You know how Catholics argue that, well, the reason why the Pope is the Pope is because Jesus uh, declared Peter to be the head of the church and gave him the keys of the kingdom. And then Peter went and became the first bishop of Rome. And then everybody who he laid his hands on, or the person who he appointed after him, is now the next bishop of Rome. He now has the keys of the kingdom. And so we have this chain of people that goes all the way back to Peter. And this is why the Bishop of Rome is better than all the rest. Even though you had five great bishops of the five great cities, the innocent argued Rome is superior to the other four and doesn't answer to them. Now the other four are like, yeah, right. We don't buy that. But he was the first one who argued it. Then you get Leo who wrote the Leo's tome to again, settle the Christological debate of the hypostatic union. And that's in 440 to 461. That's when Leo was pope. He takes Innocent's argument of Petrine theory, meaning Peter being the first pope, and then he adds scriptures to it. He quotes Matthew 16, 18 through 19. He quotes John 21, 15 through 17, where Jesus restores Peter and only Peter. And then he takes uh, Luke 22, 31 and 32, where Jesus tells Peter specifically, feed my sheep, as if Peter has a role above the other apostles. And they would mention that, look at all the lists of the apostles, Peter's mentioned first. And so, so they make this argument. Now, again, the Eastern Church did not buy it. They're like, no, but in the West, they bought it. 
And so then you take that belief by all the bishops in the West, and then you get a guy like Gregory who's able to put it all together and mix it with the politics and the monasticism and all that. Then you end up with the first pope. Um, also, the Petrine theory was strengthened. The, uh, the, our, the idea that Peter was the first pope and all the bishops of Rome just follow him was strengthened by the fact that the Romans would say, how else is this possible? Take every major theological controversy. There were seven of them. And that's why we had seven ecumenical creeds. The Eastern, the four Eastern uh, major bishops, the patriarchs, they at times got some of these issues wrong. But the Bishop of Rome every time got it right. So when it came to the Council of Nicaea, Bishop of Rome was Trinitarian. When it came to the First Council of Constantinople, again, uh, Trinitarian and refuted, uh, you know, Sabellianism and all that kind of stuff. The third one, the Council of Ephesus, they condemned Nestorius uh, and the followers of Pelagius. At Chalcedon, they confirmed Theotokos and the hypostatic union. At Second Constantinople, they condemned the Monophysites, those who believe that Jesus only had a divine nature, not a human nature. Council number six, Third Constantinople, they condemned the Monothelites, those who said Jesus only had one will. No, if he's God and man, then he has divine will and human will. Bishop of Rome was right on that. And then number seven, the Second Council of Nicaea, they condemned iconoclasm. We haven't talked about that yet. I'll probably talk about that one next time. Um, But the bottom line is, how else could this be the only bishop that has been right on every single issue? It has to be because Petrine theory is true, and Jesus really has made this one bishop the head of the church. Now, that's not true. (laughs) I mean, they got lucky. They were reading the Bible better than the other guys, But this does not support their argument. But to the people in the West, it did. They thought it it made sense. And so the result is the papacy. When you put all these together, you have a situation where the Western church was under the leadership of one bishop and Catholic religion, if you think about it, was defined by monasticism and the monasteries all answer to this one Roman bishop. The bishops in the West were recruited from the monasteries, so they're all going to be loyal to that one bishop of the West. And then again, the Western bishops already accepted Petrine theory for centuries. The new Germanic political order, meaning all these new kings and chiefs that were providing the armies and the protection, they were also loyal to the Bishop of Rome. And there was no other major bishop or city of all of the five patriarchs. Four were in the East. Only Rome was in the West. There was nobody else that could compete with this position. And so, this is why you have a Pope. And even though the church still called itself one. You know, you have one church. It was, in reality, already two different churches. In the East and the West, it was different languages, Greek versus Latin, different styles of monasticism, different liturgies, and the relationship between the church and the state was different as well. Western Christianity was now Roman Catholicism. We don't call it that until 1054, when the two halves officially split, but in practice, they're, they're a completely different uh, animal at this point. So let me conclude, and then if anybody has any questions, I'll take those questions. The Middle Ages, the reason why this is all about how we got the Middle Ages is the Middle Ages is characterized by these following things, ethno-national kingdoms, okay, that become the nations of Europe that we know today, that's where they came from, a unified religion of Rome based on Catholicism with the separation between clergy and the regular people, and then the clergy took vows of celibacy, poverty, and obedience to the Pope, that's Middle Ages, that's Catholicism, Missionaries were the monks. Regular people weren't the missionaries. It was the monks. 
Monasteries were the repository of, of knowledge. That's the Middle Ages. Okay, you didn't have massive libraries outside of the, the monasteries. The political powers in Europe were legitimized only by church recognition. And then in return, they provided protection for the church and its property. Church and state during this time were blended where everyone who was born into society was simultaneously part of the church and state. So if you're born in France, you're French or Frankish, but you're also Catholic, both at the same time. You know, this wasn't something you had to convert to. You're baptized as a baby. It's decided for you, you know, so that's just the way it worked. And so pretty much this lesson shows then how all that stuff, what you think about the Middle Ages, how it all came about. Three things, monasticism, the fall of Rome, and the growth and the influence and power of the Bishop of Rome. These three three things converged to characterize the Middle Ages. And that is all that I've got.